Well, let's turn our attention back to the Word of God by turning to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll continue of our, in our study of Paul's epistle to the believers at the city of Ephesus. And we've come to a critical section in the book in which Paul addresses Christian marriage, specifically what it means to be a godly wife and what it means to be a godly husband. We were studying for several weeks the meaning and extent of a wife's submission. And now we're going to flip to the meaning and extent of a husband's headship. The meaning and extent of a husband's headship. Let me read that paragraph, which we're doing every week, but I think it's important to hear the total before we dive into the details. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body." For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. As we continue in our study of Paul's detailed paragraph on the divine blueprint for marriage, we come to his instruction this morning to husbands. And the opening words are most instructive. In fact, verse 25, I think, is the most instructive, most penetrating, most poignant, most challenging, and most hopeful words ever penned to husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. What a verse. In fact, I don't know how to say this. Kim, I think I just got a text. They, they need you in the nursery for the next five weeks. <laughs> I'll give you time to leave. If you, no. <laughs> Several years ago, I... Uh, had an experience that I will never forget. I think I've shared part of it with you before. I, I had a secretary named Karen who was exceptional in finding books that were out of print or books that were hard to find, books that were even overseas. She found me some treasures that I would find in a footnote and was unable to find. She had an, a knack for finding these books. Well, at the time, there was a book that was out of print and my wife was looking for it, couldn't find it. So she knew that Karen was good at finding such books. So one Sunday night, we were pulling from Roscoe Boulevard into the church parking lot in Los Angeles. And we're getting ready for evening church. We're driving in for that, that evening for, for the evening church service. 
As we're pulling in, I can remember exactly where we were from that, that red light. Pulling in, she's nonchalantly kind of gathering her things. You know how it is when you're pulling in the parking lot, you're kind of gathering things up. My three sons are dutifully sitting in the back, coming to church, listening to their father and mother. Kind of. And Kim said, Honey, could you ask Karen to try to locate a book I've, I've had trouble finding tomorrow? I said, sure. What's the title? She said, without any drama, it's called Marriage to a Difficult Man. <laughs> well, I'm pulling into the space at this point, and my heart is racing and I, I'm, I'm, I'm sweating, and, and I, I, we parked, and I just said, I remember saying something like, um, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I mean, I had no idea that, and, and, and she goes, what? I said, you know, this book, Marriage to a Difficult Man, and she says, honey, now, there are different ways that my wife says honey. They all, there's a world of meaning in the way that she says that. This is one of those, huh? She says, honey, it's the biography of Sarah Edwards, Jonathan Edwards' wife. Oh, of course. Of course, of course. I was more than a bit relieved. However, men, can we be honest just for a moment with each other? It's not a stretch to imagine that most of our wives, mine at the head of the list, could indeed write a book entitled Marriage to a Difficult Man. Could they not? But my hope is as we understand and apply Paul's instruction here in this paragraph, trying to be a godly husband in the coming weeks, that we might change the title. And hopefully our wives would write a book and this would be the title. Marriage to a Difficult Man Who is becoming less difficult as he becomes more and more like his Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> I got more amens to let's close in prayer than I've ever got for anything. <laughs> so as we begin this series on a husband's loving headship, I want to ask you a simple question, men, to start with. Do you remember how you felt about that woman who you're married to now when you were first attracted to her? You remember those butterflies in your stomach, those feelings? I won't go into great detail, but it was a junior high staff meeting, and Kim Harris came in and sat down. And I stared for a while. And she would look at me and I would look away. <laughs> and then I thought, maybe I shouldn't look away. Maybe I, and I just thought she, okay, my initial attraction was not for all the right reasons, okay? She was just not hard to look at. And I, I, I thought, she's really pretty. And then I got to know her and she was really nice, and kind, and she loved the Lord, and she loved ministry. And she, it, I, it was the more I got to know, the more I wanted to know. I chose to love her eventually. Henry Smith, the great Puritan, said this, First, a man must choose his love, and then 
He must love his choice. There's no denying that we're in the middle of a cultural war against what a man who loves a woman really looks like. There's a war against biblical masculinity. In fact, the new term that we must reckon with is called toxic masculinity. You've heard that term? And this criticism targets the biblical ideal of manhood and godly leadership in a marriage. One of our members, by the way, here at Mission Road, forwarded me a copy of some training that she was forced to go through recently at her company. And included in this training was a section about microaggressions, microinsults, and microinvalidations. It was interesting that they noted in this training manual that she sent me a copy of that these behaviors and actions are usually unintentional, but they're offensive nonetheless. In fact, you can get in trouble for offending someone by doing something you, not, you didn't even know was offensive at all. What I found interesting is under section, uh, in a section of the training manual from a section called Covert Discrimination. And let me read you exactly from one of the things that it says is an offense and an aggression. Quote, men treating women with more courtesy than they do other men, end quote. That was one of the goals for raising our sons is they would treat women with courtesy, with dignity, with respect, and now that's a microaggression. Chivalry has become forbidden and taboo. In her new book that I'm reading by Nancy Piercy called The Toxic War on Masculinity, she writes this. Critics charge that male authority turns men into chauvinistic, insensitive, outmoded patriarchs. Doesn't it lead to the oppression of women? Doesn't it silence them, disempower them, lead to abuse? Then she has a list of, a, she calls a chorus of accusations from both secular and Christian sources against complementarian theology, against godly male headship and godly female submission within a marriage. These are some quotes that she gathered. Conservative Protestant gender ideology can clearly lead to abuse, both physical and emotional. That's the TV, a TV news journalist, Cokie Roberts. It's no secret that abuse is prevalent in conservative churches that embrace headship theory. That's the Adventist today. Some of these are Christian publications. Another one, at its core, complementarian theology is one of inequality and hierarchy, and inequality breeds abuse, Huffington Post. We can no longer deny a link between complementarianism and abuse. That's from the making of biblical womanhood. Another one, the theory of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. That's the co-founder of Hashtag Church 2. Another one, because complementarian theology promotes a power differential between men and women, it fosters the sort of abuse of power that devolves into sexual abuse, Huffington Post. Complementarian theology is a breeding ground for abusive marriages. The problem is not just an occasional rotten apple, but a rotten theological tree giving rise to sexism and misogyny. That's from the religion dispatches. The seed, 
Seeds of wife-beating lie in the subordination of females and their subjection to male authority and control. And it is conservative religion that makes such relationships seem natural, morally just, and sacred. That's from Violence Against Wives, the case against patriarchy. Just a couple more. I believe that male headship theology makes abuse both more possible and more likely. I believe that power differences between, the, between equals are emotionally, physically, and sexually, spiritually destructive. That's from Christians for Biblical Equality. And lastly, the inherent logic of patriarch says that if men have the right and power have the right to power and control over women and children, they also have the right to enforce that control. It is this control over component of patriarchy which makes it vulnerable to violence and abuse. That's from sexual abuse in Christian homes and churches. That's what we're up against. That's the criticism of what Paul is teaching. But here's the critical questions that those critics must answer. If a Christian husband leads and loves like Jesus leads and loves, will he turn into a chauvinistic, insensitive, abusive, outmoded patriarch? Said another way, the criticism of those opposed to complementarianism, opposed to complementarianism, is that it is a bad, outdated, abusive outcome if you lead and love like Jesus. What does that imply about the Lord himself? Well, as we've been considering since we began this study of this paragraph, every nuance of God's design for marriage is under attack. And we should expect this. Should surprise no one that Paul ends the book of Ephesians by describing our conflict with Satan and demonic forces, which I think are inherent in these ideological pushbacks. Just this last week, legislation was proposed in the U.S. by U.S. Democrat Representative Julia Brownlee from California that seeks to change a number of existing laws by striking the terms husband and wife from their text because they're too gender specific. I find myself uttering the familiar phrase over and over these days. You can't make this stuff up. We need this paragraph in Ephesians 5. Paul paints a picture in this passage for a distinctively Christian, God-honoring, God-centered marriage and his grounds for instruction are based on the relationship between the church and Christ, not Roman culture and authority constructs that are abusive. The simple summary is this. Husbands are called to love their wives in the way that Christ loves the church, and wives are called to recognize and follow the leadership of their husbands that God has provided through them. This is the marital application of what he said in Ephesians 5, 8. Walk as children of what? Light. It's dark. We need to walk in a different way as those who are the light and been influenced by the light. So here's the critical component for us as husbands. A godly man's headship with his wife is expressed not in dominance, not in domineering. It's expressed in love. 
It says that the husband is the head of the wife. It doesn't say the husband needs to go flex his muscles as the head of the wife. He applies submission in three categories after verse 21 where he says we are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That means accountable to one another. Husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. So what I want to do very quickly is is kind of tell you how this breaks down. This is, I'm kind of letting you see the backside of the quilt of this study. Um, I've broken the passage down into three applications of a husband's loving headship. Now, we're going to do ver- number one today, and we'll see how far we can get in the coming weeks. But that's the overall, it's all one section, and it's broken down into three simple applications of a husband's loving headship. First, it's a love that loves like Jesus. It doesn't love like the world loves. Second, it's a love that sanctifies like Jesus. It has a purpose of making the one beloved holy. And third, it's a love that treasures or cares like Jesus. So that's where we're going in the big picture over the coming few weeks. And those may even break down into a couple sermons, but we'll get that first one looked at this morning. It's a love that loves like Jesus. So specifically this morning, we'll be looking at a godly man that his love loves like the Lord. It loves like Jesus. So back to our proposition. Three applications of a husband's loving headship. The first, which we'll look at today, it's a love that loves like Jesus. And we'll have three sub points underneath that. It's a love that loves like Jesus. I trust you noticed from our reading of the paragraph on marriage that far greater admonition and instruction is given to the husbands than it is to the wives. Clinton Arnold writes about this disproportion and he says this, this is due in part to the fact that Paul's view of the husband's role in the Christian marriage is so counter to the prevailing understanding of the man's role in Greco-Roman society. It's also due to Paul's strategy here of using his remarks on marital relationships to elaborate on his understanding of Christ and his relationship to the church, end quote. And we talked about the fact at the very beginning that this, this passage is a reciprocating analogy. It's a technical term that says usually you use something to illustrate something else. This actually goes both ways. He uses the gospel to illustrate marriage and he uses marriage then to illustrate the gospel. They actually illustrate one another. So this first application is, it's a love that loves like Jesus. Notice notice it's applications of a husband's loving headship, not ruling headship, not domineering headship, not dominant headship, but it's loving headship. And we get that here from this, First description in verse 25, it's a love that loves like Jesus. How does that work? Well, first of all, by obeying the command, it's pretty straightforward. (laughs) Pretty straightforward. Husbands, love your wives. Straightforward command, an imperative. In verse 23, Paul mentioned that the husband is the head of the wife, not that he becomes the head of the wife, should grow into being the head. He is the head. He's the, the leader that God holds responsible And here we exercise that leadership, men, by loving our wives. In fact, Paul does not instruct the husbands to exercise headship. He doesn't instruct them to wield their headship. He instructs them to love because of their headship. The command is to love their wives. 
It's a familiar word to almost all of you if you've been around the church for any amount of time, agape. It's a present imperative of the verb love, agapate. Do this. Again, back to Clinton, Arnold, who describes this love. He says, the form of this word, this present imperative, do this, indicates that this kind of love should be the regular hallmark feature of the husband's affections and behaviors toward his wife. This kind of love. It makes no provision for the wife to earn the husband's favor. The command entails the husband's responsibility regardless of his wife's behavior, regardless of his wife's health condition or appearance or any other potential deterrent. The fact that Christ loved the church, even her, in her unlovely and unbecoming state, defines the commitment that Christ expects from the Christian husband. His love should be unconditional, without conditions. End quote. This love is an unceasing care and demonstrable service for his wife's total well-being. We've already heard that Paul sees love as a grace that all believers are to demonstrate to each other. Now he requires that specifically to husbands. Just to remind you, Ephesians 3, 17, he wants Christ to dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love will know how to minister to one another. Ephesians 4, 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all respects into him who is the head, even Christ. Ephesians 4.16, from whom the whole body being fitted together by whatever joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And then 5.2, walk in love, walk in love. Live in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Men, husbands, love is a choice. It's an undying commitment to an imperfect person. It's a commitment that automatically assumes failure and sin on the one beloved. And it's a way to show the essence of the gospel by dying to self. The heart of true, genuine agape love is a choice, an act of the will, a decision to be made and regarding our wedding vows, a promise to be kept. Men, this means that even if your wife chooses not to submit to you and not to be a submissive, godly wife, you still need to love her. You're still called to love her. This is not a love with conditions. This is not a love that says, I will love you if you drop X amount of pounds. I will love you if you have dinner ready earlier. I will love you if you will stop nagging me so much. I will love you if you will spend more time looking your best all the time. It's not a love that says, if you'll stop complaining and do the things I want, I'll keep on loving you. There is no, I will love you if 
There's no if. This is a command, men. Not an option and not a suggestion. Back to our question. Do you remember what drew you to your wife? You chose to love her. You chose your love. Now it's time to choose to love her daily. That's going to be fleshed out a little further by letter B, by following the example. The capital E there is on purpose because the example is Christ. It's a love that loves like Jesus by obeying the command. Pretty simple, do this. Secondly, by following the example, the example of Christ. Just as husbands love your wives, just, (laughs) it's just hard to read. Just as Christ also loved the church. Unspeakably amazing. Our love for our wives, gentlemen, as Christian husbands, is to be exercised, look at these words, just as Christ loved the church. That's a high bar. Can we talk about that bar for a second? Because his love is so different than ours. Romans 5.8, after saying, it's honorable for a man to die for his friend, but God, God doesn't do that. God doesn't die for his friend. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet, what? Sinners, Christ died for us. (laughs) God was not attracted to us like the women we were attracted to pursue for marriage. We were sinners. We were enemies. And he still loved us. I just remember during our engagement... I had trouble sleeping. I would lay awake at night and just think about Kim. I'm going to be in trouble for saying this later because she'll say, don't say those things. I'm sorry. I just lay awake. Ah, she's amazing. I can't wait to live with her for the rest of my life. She's amazing. I got to hurry before she figures this thing out. Um, There were never any dreams in heaven where God the Father looked at us and said, I'm going to send my son to die because I'm so amazed by those sinners. And yet, we're to love like Jesus loves. If he loved unconditionally sinners and enemies, what does that say about us who loved a woman we fell in love with. With this kind of sacrificial love as the model for husbands to follow, the submission of wives can never mean slavish subjection because the church doesn't feel that way to our Lord. Neither should a wife feel that way to her loving husband, right? British 
19th century biblical scholar Brooke Foss Westcott wrote this, Christ loved the church not because it was perfectly lovable, but in order to make it such. End quote, that's good. So here at the end of verse 25, in the middle actually, Paul demonstrates how this is accomplished. Christ is our model. Can any of us, gentlemen, can any of us say that we love our wives enough? And because we can't say that, that puts all of us in the position of we need to love, learn to love our wives better and more. Because Christ loved us as enemies. We should love our precious gifts as our co-heirs of the grace of life. And thirdly, by the way, all three of these are going to come up again in the passage. So this is almost just introduction today. Number three, or letter C, by imitating the sacrifice. Read it in, in, with the crescendo. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. This phrase describes the ultimate expression of love, giving yourself up for the one who's beloved. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's the ultimate expression of love is giving your life. This recasts a husband's love as something far beyond and far above feelings. Listen, praise God for feelings. They're a gift of God, but they don't always last like we would hope. But commitment in an agape sense does. No man can repeat the substitutionary atonement of, love, of the love of Christ. We can't, we can't imitate that. He gave himself up for us that way. But this does tell us to love our wives by imitating Jesus' love of giving up anything, even to the point of our lives, for her sake. Look again back to 5.2, chapter 5, verse 2. Walk in love just as, there's the same phrase, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself, there's the same phrase, up for us, offering himself as a sacrifice to God, as a fragrant aroma. Now, this obviously doesn't mean that every husband or many husbands will have to die for their wives, but it does mean that every godly husband should deny himself of time and interest and resources and pleasure to express love for his wife. So when I was studying this week, I think it was on Thursday, I just kind of pushed back from the study and said, okay, I just want to take a look. How does Jesus love me? Because that's how I'm supposed to love my wife. And by the way, men, this calls us to become experts in how Jesus loves the church. This text says, you want to be a godly husband? You need to be an expert in your Christology and understand Jesus. So I've got, I just jotted down, uh, I don't know, 13 or 14 of these. And I had to stop because there's more to say in the coming weeks. Here's some ways that a husband can love his wife like Jesus, looking at how Jesus loves us, okay? I'm gonna go very fast. First of all, he tells us. He tells us. John 13, 34, a new commandment, I give you that you love one another even as I love you, have loved you. 
that you also love one another. Do you tell your wife, man, do you tell your wife that you love her? Are you akin to that proverb that says, yeah, I told you once at the altar, and I'll, if it changes, I'll let you know. That, that's terrible theology. Do you tell your wife you love her? In good times and in bad, in joyful times and in conflict, do you hold her hand and look in her eyes and tell her, I love you and I will love you and I won't stop? You ever sat your kids down on the couch and said, I want you to know, you might have heard mom and dad arguing, but I love your mother and will never leave her. Do you tell? Secondly, he counsels us. Jesus counsels us. He left us his will and his word. He's given us instruction. Do you provide wisdom and counsel to your wife? Are you wise and godly? Are you, are you there to say, let's think about this. Let's open our Bibles. Let's have a biblical perspective on this. Do you provide counsel for your wife? Thirdly, he, he serves us. Mark 10, 45, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and offer his life, give his life as a ransom for many. Do you serve your wife? Do you know how to serve her? I just thought what it would be like, and I don't have the, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have the courage to do this. Maybe you can pray for me. To get a ledger, maybe an Excel spreadsheet, or just write it down, the ways that my wife serves me and our family. And then list the ways I serve my wife and how those would measure up. I just can't believe she... The simplicity of laundry and dishes and the repetitive nature of that that never stop. And she just serves us. And I know you're saying, well, you could do the laundry and the dishes. <laughs> and maybe I should. Number four, he understands us. He understands us. Hebrews 4 or 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He's tempted in all ways all things as we are yet without sin. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He understands us. He takes the time to know who we are and how we're experiencing life and cares about that. Do you, men, do you work to understand your wife? Do you live with her, as 1 Peter 3, 7 says, in an understanding way? Do you seek to understand her position, her plight? She's married to you. And she has to follow us. What is that like? Number five, he leads us. Do you give leadership, headship to your wife, to your home? Are you passive or active in your leadership? Number six, he cares for us. He cares for us. Do you demonstrate care for your wife in ways that are meaningful to her? It doesn't have to be big ways. I figured out a long time ago that there's the, my wife likes crushed ice. You know, that soft kind of crushed ice stuff. And if I'll bring her a soft drink with that, or if we go to a place that has crushed ice, it's meaningful to her. And you say, that's not a big deal. It actually is. When we were doing our, our premarital uh, class with Stuart Scott, who's a lifelong friend, he, he held out a book, which I, <laughs> I started and I have somewhere, but I 
I've put it aside. And the book said, Understanding Zandra. And he said, all of you, that's his wife, all of you should have a notebook that says understanding, and then mine was understanding Kim. Dividers, things she likes, things she does, doesn't like, uh, surprises she wants to do, places she wants to go, conversations she wants to, wants to have. It says, become the living expert on that woman. Husbands, are you the living expert about your wife. Number eight, he forgives us. He forgives us. Are you quick to forgive your wife? Oh, I'm sure we'll seek, we're quick to enjoy the forgiveness that they might grant. Are you quick to forgive? Do you forgive your wife for her sins? Or do you do go against 1 Corinthians 13 and keep a record of wrongs? He forgives us. Do you, can you imagine the record of wrongs he could pull out at any moment and flash in front of our face about us? And he doesn't. Number nine, he protects us. Do you provide protection for your wife? If you're laying in bed and she says, Honey, did you lock the door? Don't say, I believe in the sovereignty of God. <laughs> Get up and go make sure the door is locked. Number 10, he provides for us. Do you provide for her? Even if this means sacrificing your own desires, getting another job, do you provide for your wife? Oh, we were quick a few weeks ago to say the ladies shouldn't be spendthrifts and, and, and irresponsible financially. But on the other side, do we give them enough? Do we provide? Even if that means working extra or extra jobs to provide for them. Number 11, he sacrifices for us. We're just going to touch on this. This is the rest of the passage. He sacrifices for us. Do you sacrifice for her? Do you give up your desires to meet hers? That's the question. Will you give up your desires to meet her desires? Number 12, he's patient with us. Oh, how patient our Lord is with us. Is he not? I mean, the Hebrew word for God's patience, one of my favorite Hebrew words, Hebrew words it means long-nosed. His nose never scrunches up with anger. He's patient with us. Are you patient with your wife when she sins and she will? Number 13, this is so important. He listens to us. He listens to us. Jesus is never too busy to hear from us in prayer. He's never distracted. He's always interested in hearing from us. Jesus is never distracted by checking his phone, going through social media. When we're trying to talk to him, he's all ears. Ever present, ever faithful, ever caring, ever serving, ever listening. And he'll listen as long as we want to talk. How does that apply? He will listen to us as long as we want to pray. Are you willing to listen as long as your wife wants to talk? Oh, I am. Not. <laughs> and number 14, lastly, he keeps on loving us. He doesn't stop. He keeps on. This is the unconditional Commitment. He keeps on loving us. Does your love endure? Is it truly unconditional? It lasts. 
Matthew Henry has famously written, Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him, neither out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. This passage is going to beg us, men. It will demand of us, husbands. Gentlemen, it will command us to become an expert on the love of Christ for us so that we can demonstrate that to our wives. How you doing? If you're like me, you read this list and you go, I'm in trouble. But what a God who gives us the grace with each other to forgive and to grow. So what's, what's the takeaway? How about this? How about having a good discussion with your husband, with your wife? Men, are you, are you willing, are you courageous enough to sit your wife down and say, how am I loving you? How can I love you better? Now, ladies, be gentle on us a little bit if you did, okay? Just warm up. But we'd like to have that admonition and counsel and encouragement, that feedback. Our goal as Christian heads of marriages and heads of families is not to be the dude in charge who's dominating. It's to be the one who loves like our Savior, our wife, and as we'll see in the next chapter, and our children. Man, let's be lovers like Jesus. And the only way to do that is to explore, understand, memorize, know, and cherish his love for us. This week has drawn me so much more to say in studying this, it's been a couple weeks preparing for this, is to say, the burden of understanding Christ's love for us is so freighted in that phrase, love your wives as Christ loves the church. So let's be those kind of men who study and understand how Christ loves us. Precious, precious thoughts of the gospel should permeate us. This could be a time when some of you men say, I can't do that because I don't know the Savior. What a great passage and opportunity for you to turn and say, I want to experience your love. And then in turn, give that to my wife. And if you have interest in that, please don't leave without talking to someone around you or coming to our prayer room to get your life aligned with the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, 5 tells us that Peter was married. He had a wife. Here are his words to husbands. You husbands, this is 1 Peter 3, 7. You husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor Show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. We're going to come back to this passage, but I wonder if some of our spiritual stagnation that we experience from time to time is because we're not showing honor to our wives and our prayers are being rebuffed and hindered, just like this passage says. Wives, thanks for your grace in helping us 
in the next few weeks walk through this passage. Single men, use this as God's divine checklist to say, that's what I want to be, that's who I want to be, that's how I want to be because of my Lord. Father, thank you for this grace in this passage. Oh, I'm so convicted. But so thankful for your mercy, your forgiveness, for your grace. Thank you for my wife. Forgive me for the countless ways I have failed her. And thank you for the wonderful encouragement you give me to love and serve her. Use this paragraph and this series to change our marriages, which will impact our church and be a light in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.